You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson and I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach. David, um, I trust you are well. Uh, I am well, thanks very much Giles and uh, looking forward to an interesting conversation with our uh, increasingly regular and very special guest today. Well, that's right. This will be the third time we have Alex Wanhouse, the uh, Chief Engineer and System Design from the Australian Energy Market Operator. Um, I think that puts you at the top of the polls or the top of the pops, um, Alex. Um, welcome back to the Energy Insiders podcast. Giles and David, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. And I am honestly surprised you're not yet bored of me, but we'll, we'll see whether I can bore you today. How can we possibly be bored when an Australian energy market operator produces a document which talks about this extraordinary transition, or actually gives a roadmap to an extraordinary transition to renewables? Um, just for the listeners who um, maybe um, need to catch up with it, basically the integrated system plan is a 20-year blueprint of what might be necessary to sort of accommodate the various scenarios entertained for the future. Um, it should be noted that it's the first time such a detailed plan has actually sort of been put to bed. We had one two years ago. We had the draft plan last year. This is the final plan. It's really interesting because in four of the five scenarios from central scenario, which is business as usual, all the way out to step change, which is the one that um, meets the uh, science targets, the 1.5 degrees, the share of renewables in Australia leaps to around 74% by 2040, up to about 94% in the step change scenario. Now, that is um, quite extraordinary for many people um, who look at the energy industry and um, and think unkindly of wind and solar in particular. Alex, the document describes it as the fact that Australia is facing the world's fastest energy transition. Now, that must be a scary prospect just in itself. Yes, it is. Uh, on occasion, it is actually scary. And I have to, uh, in fact, credit uh, Andy Blakers and Ken Baldwin from the ANU uh, for this assessment because they have done some uh, really great research that looked at the per capita installation uh, of renewables across the world. And it is really fascinating to see that Australia is installing twice as much renewables per capita than any other country in the world. So the next next cap off the rank is Germany, my old home country. Um, and that's currently doing half um, the introduction of renewables. And when you look at the integrated system plan, um, we see this trend absolutely uh, continuing. Um, but it's, I think, also fair to say that it's not going to be an easy transition. And therefore, we believe we need to be prepared. And that's really what we're trying to do with the ISP. I, I might add before Giles just before Giles comes back that uh, Germany's going at half the rate of Australia, but of course Germany's part of Europe, and so in a sense there's a lot less risk uh, or a lot less to think about. Back to you, Giles. 
Well, I guess that leads into what I can can can, can be my next question. It wasn't going to be, but yes. I mean, I get, that's the added task of Australia, though, is on this long and elongated grid that we have. And I guess this, this is the fundamental part of the integration system plan is to make sure that these various parts of this grid, this sort of geographical spread, are connected as best as they possibly can be, which is um, really what you have sort of laid out. You've got your sort of, you know, your, your tiers of investment that really must be done sometime very, very soon um, in the medium term and in the longer term. Um, otherwise, we might face some of the problems that we're facing right now. I think uh, Giles and David, I think that's absolutely right. We and, and and that's maybe why I said at the beginning it's boring because we are actually repeating the same message over and over again. We need the appropriate investment into um, the network infrastructure to make the system work in, I might add, in the least cost way so that consumers ultimately pay the lowest amount of money, which is really important. But let me just, just also say the, the ISP is not only just about transmission. Um, the ISP is actually really thinking about it as a, as a whole of system roadmap. And transmission is an important part, but we also need to ensure that we get the markets and the regulatory regime right, because we'll have enormous amounts of effectively zero marginal cost resources in the system, and we need to manage them securely. So we need to get on top of the ramping requirements, the frequency requirements, the inertia requirements, the system strength requirements. All of that is non-trivial and hard. So we better start now. Um, also, what we are seeing in the ISP is a very large amount of distributed energy resources. So we are, we are more than doubling in some scenarios the amount of DER between now and 2040. And that requires actually DER to also step up in its in terms of its capability, for instance, the standards that it applies to, so we can make the most of this incredible resource. Alex, the ISP is is a major document, and I'm sure it's consumed a very large part of, of yours and and a, a large team. I think we've discussed up to forty people have worked on the, on it at a at a emo plus all the uh, input from a huge amount of input from consultants and stakeholders uh, but I'd like to come back to the very big picture uh, and, and we this means there are so many elements we could talk about you know from all of those technical things which I personally find very interesting and have been putting some time into uh, uh, through to the amount of renewable energy that it's going to be uh, produced but there are a couple of topics I'm very interested in. And one of them is the kind of uh, regulatory and political support and the legal status of the ISP. Uh, I noticed that the AER uh, finally published some uh, guidelines um, um, about how the ISP is going to be made actionable from the AER's perspective. Um, I, I only noticed a relatively lukewarm, frankly, um, endorsement of the ISP uh, from the federal government, uh, which still had a focus on low cost uh, uh, and the way that the ISP might contribute to that. And that, that was about the only comment. So I'm giving you a few things you might want to talk about here. Uh, um, and uh, 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 then I would, might also mention that Project Energy Connect, uh, one of the key planks of the ISP, uh, received its um, um, RIT approval back in January and here we are six or seven or eight months later, and it still hasn't got the final go-ahead. So, I mean, really, uh, are we actually making any progress? 
David, I think we are making progress. Um, you are probably like me. I would love to make more progress and faster, but um, you know, um, I take I take progress anyway over uh, actually moving backwards. Um, now you have given me a, a lot of uh, sort of different different um, things to talk about. Um, maybe just this one I wanted to pick out. Um, you mentioned sort of the the federal government's interest in in lowest cost. This is also a really important uh, criterion actually for us when we develop the ISP. Really, the whole point of the ISP is actually to develop the system that delivers the least cost outcomes to consumers. That That is our objective function, and that's what we're meeting. And, and frankly, we are quite excited about, on a good day, uh, the answer, which is you know, the future system, the least cost future system is actually made up of firmed renewables to replace some of the existing generators that are exi exiting. Um, but, you know, on a on a difficult day, it also actually puts a lot of work on us, a lot of work on, you know, developer of, developers of renewable projects, um, the OEMs of renewable projects, the network service providers, et cetera, to actually then make this system work. But I think based on the work that we have done, uh, I think we're actually making progress in, in implementing this least cost solution on behalf of the nation. And, and, and do you think, I mean, that really the i i mean the rit test it seems to me is still um a narrow test in the way it's implemented even though when i read the ar guidelines they seem to allow for more and and the isp can't really proceed unless all the projects meet their rit uh thresholds and and that still seems to be relatively slow as i say and still a time consuming process i mean we could we could look around the nem right the second and see that uh, there are all these problems because frankly uh it's hard to get connected look um i think there is maybe scope for improvement to further streamline the regulatory framework that we're having um at while well, i think also which is also important not to compromise you know, cost impost on consumers. Um, but I think there is room for improvement. But uh, I think let's also remember what we do have nowadays through the actionable ISP, which frankly, if you had asked me five years ago, I would have said never in my lifetime am I going to see a central planning approach um, to, to the NEM. That was almost a dirty word. And nowadays we are doing it, and I think we are doing it really with, with absolutely the best intentions in mind to actually build the system so that we can integrate the new generators at least cost and build a system that doesn't experience price shocks when existing generators exit. I'm just wondering, um, just from the previous ISP, there's been a couple of interesting developments on costs. Now, um, you notice that the um, your, your cost estimates for battery storage have fallen quite significantly. On the other hand, the cost est estimates for gas generation and pumped hydro have also risen. Now, these are actually quite important because they're going to be expected to be provide the bulk of dispatchable energy in some form, along with demand response and um, in distributed energy. Just tell me, how, did, how has that made you rethink or, or think differently about the ISP? Um, what sort of changes has that brought upon you? That's a great question, Giles. And, and it's probably a reality that in 
especially sort of fast moving technology fields like batteries, we'll, we'll probably continue to see cost improvements going forward. And, and that's what we've obviously captured in our new assumptions. It doesn't, it hasn't actually made a fundamentally big difference to the final ISP, because when you compare the final ISP to the um, draft ISP that we published in December, they're, they're actually very, very similar. Um, but it has made sort of tweaks around the edges. So what you see as a result of battery cost coming down is the um, um, dispatchable energy resources. Uh, we need about six to 19 gigawatts of those um, in the next 20 years. That has shifted much more to batteries uh, compared to maybe pumped hydro that we had before. Um, and you also mentioned gas. So gas is a really... Uh, important element of the system in that we see a lot of utilization of uh, especially the existing gas plants. But when it comes to building new gas plants, especially in the 2030s, when a lot of the existing generators exit, and when we expect battery costs to have come down uh, quite significantly compared to today, um, it will actually be very challenging um, for gas to compete. But uh, to be honest, that is not something that the ISP prescribes. Uh, that's where we think there's a real role for the market to play to actually select uh, the most suitable technology at the time to provide uh, dispatchable resources. And that's, again, coming back, I think, to one of the themes that you have touched upon, um, David, is that's why we need the right development of the right market framework to actually induce the least cost dispatchable resources going forward. Alex, just on that, this is the other topic I really wanted to come on to. Um, when the studies that ITK has done uh, show that when we get, uh, that renewable energy production is highly seasonal, uh, and we saw that already last year, that during the December half, and particularly around, you know, September and October, there's tons and tons of wind and solar, uh, and demand is very low. So there's a huge surplus. Uh, on the other hand, in the June half, uh, demand tends to exceed, uh, um, you know, and uh, be higher, and wind and solar production is tends to be relatively low, obviously, at night time. And, uh, I guess the issue I see is that during these times when demand is high, there won't actually be enough opportunities to recharge storage like batteries and pumped hydro. And on the other hand, they'll often be full during this December half period uh, when there's a big surplus. And I, I'm, am I just thinking that by myself or is that something that shows up in the ISP? And if so, how does it manage it? So it is definitely uh, an issue that we are considering in the ISP. So just, just sort of lifting the hood a little bit um, on, so you can look at the inside of the ISP. What we are doing to determine what is a least cost energy mix for the NEM going forward, we are actually simulating the system um, across nine different weather years. So we get all of this seasonal variability, not only between different seasons, as you have highlighted it, but also actually between different years, because we have some years where there is a lot of variability and other years where there's maybe less variability. And we are trying to determine what are the, the 
the best economic trade-offs between the different generation forms. And so there is a, a real trade-off decision, for instance, do you invest in deep storage that can store seasonal energy and release it uh, in the next season? And, you know, Snowy 2.0 is an example of that. Or maybe do you uh, let some uh, renewable spill and that, that can be quite an effective economic strategy um, especially in the future when when as when the cost of these plants has come come down even further or do you maybe build um, other dispatchable sources such as gas or maybe even hydrogen plants in the future into the system that can um, deal with the seasonal um, fluctuations so there are actually lots of different management strategies we are taking in the isp the at least cost view on how that might look like but it really comes back in reality um, it's actually ultimately up to the market and investors in the market to determine what is the the most optimal mix of resources to meet um, these fluctuations but we are certainly very confident uh, that those fluctuations with the right infrastructure can absolutely be managed I'm just wondering the um, couple of the scenarios that you've got. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated between the difference between the distributed, um, the, the high high DER, which is the high level of distributed energy and uh, rooftop solar and um, and uh, household batteries and electric vehicles and demand response and and the step change scenario or, or, or the fast the fast change scenario, which is sort of technology driven, much lower cost for larger scale wind and solar. When you're sort of contemplating that, does that drive a change in the network investment that's required, or does that? Um, how does that kind of play out? Because I mean, I, I, I guess it's the big. It, it's two of the big sort of um, things about how much distributed energy will be needed and, and, and required, and, and how that actually affects the network requirements, the broader network requirements of the grid. You're right that, uh, especially in those scenarios where we test against high DER uptake. Uh, some of the uh, future network developments um, may not actually happen because, because, for instance, a res that we would normally build to tap into particular solar resource might actually be, in this case, um, or the energy from solar might actually be provided from, from distributed sources. So we are actually spelling that out when you look at at the detail of the document, you can actually see um, a real roadmap that says, for example, if you're in a high DR scenario, a certain project doesn't happen. Um, and, and this is one of the ways with which we are trying to um, manage the uncertainty that we are facing going forward by at least highlighting here the different, different pathways that we could take as a nation, making sure that we are putting the plans in place to maybe invest in this infrastructure if it is required, but also have a clear decision point. For example, if we see a high DER scenario emerging, that, that some of those later network expansions are actually not required, and then we can maybe rely more on DER. So we, we, what we are trying to do is, is really build in that flexibility. 
One of the issues with um, DER, of course, is rooftop solar. I'm just wondering if you could just explain a little bit about the way that you're viewing rooftop solar, because there are things that you do want to intervene in the market. You do want to have the ability to be able to sort of shed um, rooftop solar in certain circumstances. One, to ensure that minimum demand doesn't fall too low. But um, I also noticed that, um, you know, rooftop solar and the increasing amounts may pose a, um, issues for um, system strength. Um, for restart capabilities and things like that. Can, can you sort of explain in just broader terms what you're proposing to do here? Because, I mean, there's, there's scary headlines about it. Oh, AEMO is going to be shutting off PV. My understanding is that this will happen in such a rare event um, um, that um, it won't happen very often at all. But I guess if you give someone the switch to do something, they might be playing with it more often than they thought. Yeah, I mean, we, we are we are really not trying to switch uh, people's PV systems off. Um, but what we do want to see is is much higher capability of DER as it comes into the system. Because, you know, we might be f seeing a future where in 20 years, over 20% of um, our energy needs are actually delivered by these generators. Um, so what we are specifically looking for is actually a higher standard um, for this equipment to write through faults on the system. So, you know, something happens on the system. What we are actually seeing is, is that a lot of the DER is tripping off. And, you know, when you are in a future where you're relying on the supply, that, that must not happen. And it's actually technically doable. It's really just a function of um, agreeing on the standard, rolling out the standard and making sure it's implemented. So that that will also already help us. And that's that's a process that's well, well on its way. Um, you're right. We also want to have uh, a bit more controllability, but it's really just for very, very rare and extreme events. And it's it's often, as you mentioned, what we call minimum demand events, which will which are already um, an issue in South Australia, but um, we are actually about to publish the issue as well. So we'll talk about um, how that maybe affect other states such as Victoria and Queensland as well. Again, that can be managed through greater uh, controllability, but that would only be coming in on those days where you know you have very low demand, like on the weekend, you have very high um, solar, um, and and use it really with with a lot of careful discretion if it is really needed it's a bit like you know what we have also have as a tool in our toolbox uh, where we can um, uh, do some load shedding for instance when we have a peak demand day and as a means of last resort we can actually turn power off but uh, as you would be quite aware we are actually very 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 reluctant uh, to use these powers but sometimes they are necessary to just protect um, the integrity of the system Alex, uh, so many questions and uh, I really appreciate your time in answering some of them. If I just look at the central scenario, um, there's uh, around about 2028, 20, you know, there's a, uh, through to about 2032 or 33, there's, that's when the really powerful reduction in coal generation is scheduled to occur. And uh, presume, I mean, my two questions around that are, are you confident that there'll be enough uh, replacement generation built ahead of time uh, for that period? And I guess that goes to policy. Even if solar is um, 
the lowest cost way of doing it and spilled energy, say, is the lowest cost way of doing it. Uh, do I want to be a developer, uh, you know, contributing to lowest cost by getting zero for my system? How, how, how does that, what sort of policies are needed to make sure we've got enough stuff, low cost place stuff in place for what's an increasingly imminent sort of big change? You are very right in pointing out one of the key things we need to achieve. We need to actually build the resources before these power stations exit, because as we have seen in the past, every single time a power station has exited and the, if the resources weren't in place, actually consumers are worse off. So that's, that's really important. Um, it is important to have sufficient renewables in place because they are really in the future system providing a lot of the bulk energy to the system. Um, I think we have seen probably a, a cooling down of the market. And uh, I think we, as, as many other people, are watching that very carefully because we are, we are probably at the moment at, at really the almost the minimum level of investment that we want, uh, that we absolutely need. Um, and we certainly don't want to see a level of investment that's lower. Um, with renewables, um, we have actually in every single state um, a lot of commitments to drive investments into renewables in a variety of different ways, um, which I think is good. So that gives me hope that we will see this investment. Um, what I'm frankly a little bit more concerned about is the market mechanism that will drive the building of dispatchable energy. And I think this is clearly also on the radar screen for the ESB as part of their market 2025 reform. Because in addition to the renewables we need, be it batteries, be it pumped hydro, um, in the system to make sure we cover also those times um, when obviously renewables might not be producing. So, uh, you know, I, I just wonder if, if we look at the low prices at the moment, it's and it, <laughs> frankly, part of the reason we're seeing low investment comes back to the fact that the ISP, to put it kindly, didn't exist 10 years ago uh, and the transmission investment is way behind where it actually needs to be. Um, so, I mean, I don't actually see that with all the best will in the world when prices are low and there's no transmission, how are we going to get an acceleration of investment? Look, I mean, you're you're right. I mean, we need to we need to watch this very carefully, and and again, hopefully, the ISP can help to play this role because we are providing um, a view of how what's the minimum renewable and dispatchable capacity required, um, and so we need to keep looking at this, and we need to raise the alarm bells if we are seeing there's actually not enough investment coming into the market. And, and I think if that is the case, um, you know, we, there, may, may, there, there may be a need for a, an intervention. And, you know, in, in the end, I'll come back to this, the type of intervention that we would love to see is, is actually really good and well-designed market mechanisms that give long-term visibility to investors about, um, the investment environment so people can actually make considered decisions and, you know, ultimately make good investment decisions because that will be 
in the benefit of of everyone because that leads to the least cost outcome. Alex, I guess there is a bit of frustration about the connections process at the moment. It seems that um, a lot more modelling emerges all the time and that sort of um, raises alarm bells, sort of fears of sort of system oscillations, too much power flowing east towards Wagga Wagga in the case of the southwest, um, New South Wales. Um, apparently new issues in Victoria, which um, I think have contributed to the problems or the um, the delays now at Dundonald um, Wind Farm. What, I mean, it's... It's a difficult situation for a lot of those people who are trying to connect to the grid now. Is there any magic wand that can be that can be waved, or is it um, um, <laughs> obviously not? You can't. But um, I'm I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering how people should sort of look at this because the ISP is obviously, as, as David said, is going to come. It, it's coming too late to for, for for the backlog which has grown now. Um, I mean, is there some way to accelerate the issues? I mean, um, yeah. No, look, I, I think it's a it's a it's a really tough question, um, and I wish there was a, a magic wand. Or we have also been calling for silver bullets, but uh, unfortunately, um, we haven't found that yet. So, um, I think it's a very challenging issue for many projects, um, and I think this has the risk and may already have impacts on the investment climate. In Australia, and I think as we've discussed before, that is an issue that we are very, very concerned about. But I think in the end, we need to solve it. So, uh, long term, I think the solution is is pretty clear. And in my view, I think we need to build the network infrastructure. I'm very, very excited about the renewable energy zone concept that, in particular, New South Wales has recently embraced. I think that gives us a real opportunity to engineer an area of the system so it can take with confidence, for example, three gigawatts of uh, renewables in the central west Orana res, and and then um, there should be far uh, fewer surprises during the connection process. But I think um, the, real, the, the reality is there is a lot of projects currently struggling in the process. And I can only say from a EMO point of view, um, we are working very, very hard at trying to help solve these problems. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that we had quite a few lessons learned um, over the last couple of years as it comes to um, connecting generators to the system. I think we recognize that um, we can do better in terms of um, the clarity of the communication that we are providing, um, the consistency of assessment, um, the speed with which we are working through it. Um, and we are working very, very hard at this. I hope um, that maybe we are seeing some fruits of that labor already playing off. Um, but um, I think it is it is no doubt it's a challenging challenging situation. I think the best advice I can I can give to people, um, work with us on it. Um, we, we really want to sort this out. Um, and as you consider maybe new investments into the system, pick a spot where um, the system is strong, where there is a lot of system strength and, and put a plant in that has, you know, strong and high technical capability. Mm -hmm. um, that's, I think, all key success factors in this process. Yeah. 
I guess a couple of I guess a couple of project developers would argue that they thought they had chosen a good part of the grid, a strong part of the grid, yet they're still facing difficulties. Uh, that's right. So, um, and you know, every project has um, has its own issues. So there are some projects that are struggling because of um, um, maybe lack of of network capability. I think there are other projects um, maybe struggling with. Um, issues associated with the plant itself, uh, or maybe and with maybe also the interpretation of, of the rules. I think what we are trying to do is, is taking a pragmatic approach. And you mentioned one of these projects before. So um, in this case, for instance, if there's not an immediate system security risk, um, we are thinking about, well, can we actually, for instance, progress hold point testing while we are working on maybe finding a solution to an issue that has been identified. Um, so, so that's the kind of approach and thinking that I've certainly asked um, our team to take. And um, I think where we can, um, we are taking that approach. Alex, I might just ask uh, about um, the States, I guess. I mean, you know, in the original version of the ISP, the, uh, Arana zone in New South Wales uh, wasn't necessarily um, a high priority, but now it is, of course, and, and, and that's terrific. Um, I guess in Queensland, we've uh, seen amazingly ahead of the Queensland election, a whole flurry of announcements. Uh, sometimes I wish there was an announcement and an election in every state every year, but uh, um, will those um, announcements in Queensland make much difference to the, to the way you think about development in Queensland? Maybe. So, uh, firstly, I said, beware what you wish for having an election every year. But um, that aside, um, <laughs> ab ab absolutely, I think um, we, we have some we have some very clear criteria um, that we are applying in the ISP for when we actually consider a policy as committed. And for example, in the in the Central West. Orana case, we, we have actually satisfied ourselves that this is a committed policy. And then uh, exactly as you said, we have actually seen this come in uh, into the ISP. Um, and that's that's one of the key differences since the draft. And the same uh, applies to, to Queensland. So we really look forward to working uh, with the Queensland government and, and the relevant network service providers in Queensland to um, uh, do the technical work required, and then as the as the government obviously then legislates the policy, then um, I think we can hopefully uh, achieve an outcome where we can bring in those renewables, um, as I said earlier, um, maybe without some of the surprises that people had, um, um, because we have designed the system in the right way. I'm wondering if I can just ask about um, grid-forming inverters. Um, you were on a, um, a webinar um, a week or so ago with um, Transgrid, and I remember they were talking about their um, mini-grid over in Broken Hill, and you sounded almost disappointed when they said it wasn't going to be grid-forming grid inverters. I was, and, I was. <laughs> <laughs> so that leads to the question. I mean, what is the potential for grid-forming inverters? We had a very long interview last week with um, Dean Sharafi from AEMO in Western Australia. Uh, so we sort of went to the 
to the question in depth, more sort of a technical thing, but um, it is a question for many developers about, you know, how they should be thinking in the future um, because what is the potential for them to be an answer to a lot of the problems that they're facing now? Yeah, um, let me actually first, I mean, grid farming inverters are absolutely important, but but I, I, I am actually, I love all, all technologies and I think it's great to see a compressed air energy system going in into Broken Hill. I think that's also a technology that frankly we want to get more experience uh, with uh, because in the end, you know, we just need to find the solutions that work. Um, but coming back to grid farming inverters, I, I think... Um, we are very, very keen to see them applied, and in particular, sort of uh, not only in island systems, but but actually in the in the bulk part of the system, because we can solve almost all issues with batteries nowadays that we're experiencing on the system. But the but the one thing that we're still struggling with is system strength, um, and that is really almost. It's, it's as close as you can get to a silver bullet, I would say, uh, since we've spoken about silver bullets before, is actually having the grid farming inverter capability that um, means that we don't have to maybe um, ask for investment into synchronous condensers, uh, which are just you know very old machines. And now that we are, by the way, installing them into the system, we, we see that they're suffering all of the challenges of you know mechanical machines because they can have oil leaks and they break and batteries are just um, a much better technology. So um, what we are doing, and you actually see this even in our corporate plan that we've recently published, um, we, we are wanting to this year um, get a real handle on what are the technology solutions out there very keen on collaborating with Arena and um, actually a number of uh, developers who are putting some very exciting proposals together. So we really understand the capabilities of this technology and frankly, uh, put it a bit through the ringer so that as system operator, we gain the confidence that we can deploy this technology at scale because that's almost the last missing piece of the puzzle. Hmm. Last question for me, uh, Alex, today is just about the markets that might be uh, needed to support that introduction. Uh, I guess that the uh, um, AEMC is considering uh, a fast frequency uh, market amongst other sort of similar proposals. Um, does it need to be more specific than that, like a market for, uh, I guess, uh, system strength, if I can put it that way? or um, uh, I guess a, mar a market for islanding even um, uh, capability, which would lead you towards those things? Yeah, I think there's definitely scope for a, a fast frequency or, or probably inertia market going forward. Um, and there's, again, there's some uh, really exciting things that are happening in, in South Australia, <laughs> almost out of necessity, um, but we are actually starting to, to recommend and trial the use of fast frequency response from batteries uh, to address some of the uh, system security concerns we have, uh, especially under Ireland in conditions in the most cost-effective way. So yeah, we, we welcome that market. Um, you also briefly mentioned sort of markets for system strength. Um, I think they, 
might look a little bit different, but I know that, uh, for instance, Powerlink and Clean Coal, um, among uh, other people as well, are thinking of maybe novel commercial solutions to ensure that system strength can be provided at scale uh, to, say, developers of renewable projects. And it's, again, um, very exciting developments. And, you know, I think we need to trial these things. Um, maybe not everything will 100% work uh, first time around, but um, I think it's important to try to learn and then to have um, a full toolkit to build the system of the future. Look, Alex, um, I think we've probably just about um, used up our time. Um, could talk much longer, but look, we do thank you once again for um, joining the Energy Insiders podcast to discuss the um, integrated system plan. And um, I'm sure we'll have you back on sometime um, soon um, with the next um, iteration of um, whatever it is that uh, you'll be coming up with. And um, certainly uh, much to do and, um, and much to think about. So um, once again, thank you very much, um, Alex, for uh, joining the podcast. Oh, and Alex, I sorry, uh, I just remembered. I, I know you, Aemo, uh, held a, a webinar only a couple of days ago, which I couldn't attend. I was just wondering. We've talked about a lot, but was there any uh, dominant theme that came through that uh, webinar about the ISP that that you would want to mention to our listeners? Well, um, I have to admit, I actually didn't attend the webinar because I was actually working on getting renewable plants connected. So, um, but I, I think the team has hopefully done a, a really good job. And, you know, the, I think the key messages really of the ISP is um, our system is really changing fast. We have to replace the plants that are coming out, um, renewables um, with the right amount of firming. It's the lowest cost solution. Uh, and to make it work, we need the right markets, the right regulation, and and the right infrastructure. I think we know what we need to do. I think it's really just a function of we need to get on and, frankly, just do it. Thank you. That's a good way to end it. I'd just like to thank our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon. I'd like to thank all the listeners um, who uh, listen to our podcast and um, and uh, uh, please leave a review on your favourite podcast platform. Once again, thanks to Alex. And um, we'll be back again. Um, Alex Wanhouse, sorry, the Chief System Designer and Engineer at AEMO. And uh, we'll be back again this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future.